Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Planet Strappers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Planet Strappers by Raymond Z. Gollum. Chapter 7, Part 2. For a week, about all Nelson did was ride along with Huth in the heli. At intervals, he'd call, Mitch, Mitch Story, into his helmet phone. But of course, that was no use. He couldn't say that he didn't see Mars from a safe altitude of 2,000 feet. The vast empty deserts, where, fairly safe from the present dominant form of Martian life, a few adventurers and archaeologists still rummaged among the rust heaps of climate control and other machines, and, among the blasted debris of glazed ceramic cities, still faintly tainted with radioactivity, where the original inhabitants had died. The straight ribbons of thicket growths, crossing even the deserts, carrying in their joined hollow roots the irrigation water of the otherwise mythical canals. The huge south polar cap of hoarfrost melting, blackening the soil with brief moisture, while the frost line retreated towards the highlands. Sirtis itself, where the trails once burned out with oxygen and gasoline jelly to permit the passage of vehicles, had again become completely overgrown. Who could hope to stamp out that devilishly hardy vegetation, propagating by means of millions of wind-blown spores, with mere fire? The broken-down trains of tractors and trailers, now almost hidden. The stellene garden domes that had flattened. Here were the relics left by people who had sought to spread out to safety, to find old goals of freedom from fear. Several times in Citrus, Huth and Nelson descended, using a barren hillock or an isolated spot of desert as a landing area. That was when Nelson first heard the buzzing of the growths. Twice working warily with machetes and holding their flame weapons ready, they chopped armored mummies from enwrapping tendrils, while little eye cells glinted at them balefully, and other tendrils bent slowly toward them. They searched out the space fitness cards, which bore old dates and addresses of next of kin. In a few more days, Nelson was flying the copter. Then he was out on his own, watching, searching. For a couple of weeks, he hangered the heli at once, after each patrol, and Nance always was there to meet him as he did so. Inevitably, the evening came when he said, We could fly out again, Nance, for an hour or two. It doesn't break any rules. Those evening rides, high over Sirtis Major, toward the setting sun, became an every-other-day custom, harmless in itself. A carefully kept nuclear battery motor didn't conk. The vehicle could almost fly without guidance. It was good to look down at the blue-green shagginess below. Familiarity bred, not contempt, but a decline of dread to the point where it became a pleasant thrill, an overtone to the process of falling in love. Otherwise, perhaps they led each other on, into incaution. Out in the lonely fastness of Mars, they seemed to find the sort of peace and separation from danger on the hectic Earth that settlers had sought here. "'We always pass over that same hill,' Nance said during one of their flights. "'It must have been a beautiful little island in the ancient ocean, when there was that much water. 
Now it belongs to us, Frank. It's barren. We could land, Nelson suggested quickly. They visited the hill a dozen times safely, breaking no printed rule. But maybe they shouldn't have come so often to that same place. In life there is always a risk, which is food for a fierce soul. Frank Nelson and Nance Cottus were fierce souls. They'd stand by the heli and look out over Citrus, their gloved fingers entwined. If they couldn't kiss here through their helmets, that was merely comic pathos, another thing to laugh and be happy over. Our wind-blown hill, Nance chuckled on that last evening, looking down over a culture, a history, maybe arguments, lawsuits, jokes, parties, gossip too, for all we know, disguised as a huge briar patch that makes funny noises. Shut up. I love you, Nelson gruffed. Shut up yourself. It's you I love, she answered. The little sun was half sunk behind the horizon. The copter was only a hundred feet away along the hill crest. That's when it happened. Two dull, plopping sounds came almost together. If a thinking animal can use the pressure of confined gas to repel small missiles, is there any reason why other intelligences can't do the same? From two bottle-like pods, the clusters of darts, or long, sharp thorns, were shot. Only a few of them struck their targets. Fewer still found puncturable areas, and struck through silicone rubber and fine steel wire cloth into flesh. Penetration was not deep, but deep enough. Nance screamed. Nelson wasn't at all sure that he didn't scream himself, as the first anguish dizzied and half-blinded him. From the start, it was really too late. Nelson was as hardy and determined as any. He tried to get Nance to the copter. Less than halfway, she crumpled. With a savage effort of will, he managed to drag her a few yards before his legs refused to obey him or support him. His blood carried a virus to his brain about as quickly as it would have carried a cobra's venom. They probably could have made such protein poisons, too, but they had never used them against men, no doubt because something that could spread and infect others was better. For a while, as the black star-shot night closed in, Nelson knew or remembered nothing at all, unless the mental distortions were too horrible. Then he seemed to be in a pit of stinking, viscous fluid, alive with stringy unknowns that were boring into him, Unreachable in another universe was a town called Jarviston. He yelled till his wind was gone. He had a half-lucid moment in which he knew it was night and understood that he had a raging fever. He was still clinging to Nance, who clung to him, so instinct still worked. He saw that they had blundered. Its black bulk was visible against the stars. Phobos hadn't risen. Deimos the farther moon was too small to furnish appreciable light. Something touched him from behind, and he recoiled, pushing Nance back. He yanked the machete from his belt and struck blindly. Oh, no, you didn't get caught like this. Not usually, he told himself. Not in their actual grip. They were too slow. You could always dodge. It was only when you were near something not properly disinfected that you got Sirtis fever, which was the worst that could happen wasn't it? He heard an excited rhythm in the buzzing. Now he remembered his shoulder lamp, fumbled to switch it on, failed, 
and stumbled a few steps with Nance toward the hill. Something caught his feet, then hers. Trying to get her free, he dropped his machete. Huff's voice spoke in his helmet phone. We hear you, Nelson. Hold on. We'll be there in forty minutes. Yeah, forty minutes. It's, it's silly to be scared, Frankie, he heard Nance stammer, almost apologetically. Dear Nance. Screaming, he kicked out again and again with his heavy boots and got both her and himself loose. It wasn't any good. A shape loomed near them, a thing that must have sprung from them some way, a huge zombie form, the ugliest part of this night of anguish and distortion. But he was sure that it was real. The thing struck him in the stomach. Then there was a biting pain in his shoulder. There wasn't any more, just then. But this wasn't quite the end, either. The jangled impressions were like split threads of consciousness, misery racked and tenuous. They were widely separated. His brain seemed to crack into a million needle-pointed shards that made no sense except to indicate the passage of time. A month? A century? It seemed that he was always struggling, impossibly, to get himself and Nance somewhere, out of hot, noisome holes of suffocation, across deserts, up endless walls, and past buzzing sounds that were mixed incongruously with strange harmonic music that seemed to express all time and space. He could never succeed, though the need was desperate. But sometimes there was a coolness answering his thirst, or rubbed into his burning skin, and he would seem to sleep. Often voices told him things, but he always forgot. It wasn't true that he came out of the hot fog suddenly, but it seemed that he did. He was sitting in dappled sunshine in an ordinary lawn chair of tubular magnesium, with a back and bottom of gaudy fabric. Above him was a narrow, sealed roof of stellene. The stone walls showed the beady fossils of prehistoric Mars. More than probably, these chambers had been cut in the living rock by the ancients. Reclining in another lawn chair beside him was Nance, her eyes closed, her face thin and pale. He was frightened, until he remembered, somehow, that she was nearly as well as he was. Beyond her was a doorway leading into what seemed a small, modern kitchen. There was a passage to a small, neat garden where earthly vegetables and flowers grew. It was sealed with stellene. Its walls were solid rock. Looking up through the transparent roof above him, he saw how a thin mesh of fuzzy tendrils and whorls masked the strange Shangri-La. Nelson closed his eyes and thought back. Now he remembered most of what he had been told. Mitch, he called quietly, so as not to awaken Nance. Hey, Mitch, Selma. Mitch's story was there in a moment, dressed in dungarees and work shirt, like he used to be, but taller, even leaner, and unsmiling. Nelson got up. Thanks, Mitch, he said. Their voices stayed low and intense. For nothing, Frank. I'm damn glad to see you, but you still shouldn't have come nosing. Because I've told you why, looking for you. Huth burned out more than five square miles. And if folks get too smart and too curious, it won't be any good for what's here. Nelson felt angry and exasperated. 
but he had a haunting thought about a lanky colored kid in Jarviston, Minnesota, a guy with a dream, or perhaps a prescient glimpse of his own future. "'What's a pal supposed to do?' he growled. "'For a hell of a long time you've answered nobody, though everyone in the bunch must have tried beaming you. Sure, Frank, blame from me would be way out of line. I heard you guys lots of times, but it was best to get lost.' Maybe help keep the thickets like they are for as long as possible. A while back, I began picking up your voice in my phones again. I figured you were heading for trouble when you kept coming with your girl to that same hill. So I was around, like I told you before. Sorry I had to hit you and give you the needle, but you were nuts. Gone with Sirtis. Getting you back here without Huth spotting the old heli I picked up once at a deserted settler's camp was real tough going. I had to land, hide it, and wait four or five times, and you were both plenty sick. But there are a few medical gimmicks I learned from the thickets, better than those at the station. You've done all right for yourself here, haven't you, Mitch? Nelson remarked with a dash of mockery. All the modern conveniences, in the middle of the forbidden wilds of Sirtis Major. Sure, Frank, cause maybe I'm selfish, though it's just stuff that settlers left behind. Anyway, it wasn't so good at the start. I was careful, but I got the fever too, light. Then I fell, broke my leg out there. I thought sure I was finished when they got hold of me. But I just lay there, playing on my mouth organ, an old hymn, inside my helmet. Maybe it was the music. They must have felt the radio impulses of my tooting before, or else they knew somehow that I was on their side, that I figured they were too important just to disappear, and that I meant to do anything I could short of killing to keep them all right. Nope, I wouldn't say that they were so friendly, but they might have thought I'd be useful, a guinea pig to study or otherwise. For all I know, examining my body may have helped them improve their weapons. Anyhow, you won't believe this, cause it's sort of fantastic, but you know they work best with living tissue. They fixed that leg, bound it tight with tendrils, went through the steel cloth of my archer with hollow thorns. The bone knit almost completely in four days, and the fever broke. Then they let me go. Selma was already out looking for me. When I found her, she had the fever too. But I guess we're immune now. Story's quiet voice died away. What are you going to do, Mitch? Just stay here for good? What else, if I can? This is better than anything I remember. Peaceful, too. If they study me, I study them. Not like a real scientist, but by just having them close around, I even got to know some of their buzzing talk. Maybe I'll have to be their ambassador to human folks sometime. They are from the planets of the stars, Frank. Sirius, I think. Tough little spores can be ejected from one atmosphere and drift in space for millions of years. They arrived after the first Martians were extinct. Now that you're here, Frank, I wish you'd stay, but that's no good. Somebody lost always makes people poke around. Nelson might have argued a few points, but for one thing he felt too tired. I'll buy it all your way, Mitch, he said. I hope Nance and I can get out of here in a couple more days. Maybe I shouldn't have run out on the belt. Can't run. Thoughts follow you. But now, damn it, I want to go home. That's regular, Frank, cause you've got the Sirtis. 
chronic, now intermittent. But it'll fade. Same with your girl. Meanwhile, they won't let you go Earthside, but you'll be okay. I'll fly you out close enough to the station to get back any morning before daylight that you pick. Only, you won't tell, will you, Frank? No, I promise. If you think secrecy makes any difference. Otherwise, thanks for everything. By the way, do you ever listen in on outside news? Enough. Still quiet. And a fella named Miguel Ramos, with nerve-controlled clamps for hands, got a new special bub and took off for Pluto. No, damn fool. Almost as loony as you are, Mitch. Bless. Wake up, Nance. Dinner, chicken, raised right here. That same afternoon, Frank Nelson and Nance Cottis sat in the garden. If I blur, just hold me tight, Frankie, she said. Everything is still too strange to quite get a grip on, yet. But I'm not going home. Frank, not even when it is allowed. I set out I'm sticking. I'm not turning tail. It's what people have got to do in space more than ever. Even when the seizure of fever came, and the sweat gathered on her lips, and her eyes went wild, she gritted her teeth and just clung to him. She had spunk, admirable, if perhaps destructive. "'Love you, Frank,' kept saying. "'Love you, sweetie.' Two days later, before the frigid dawn, they saw the last of Mitch Story and his slender, beautiful wife with her challenging brown eyes. "'Be careful that you do right for Mitch and these folks,' she warned, almost commandingly, as the old heli landed in the desert a few miles from the station. "'What would you do if outsiders came blundering into your world by the hundreds, making trails, killing you with fire?' At first, they didn't even fight back. The question was ancient but valid. In spite of his experiences, Nelson agreed with the logic and the justice. "'We'll make up a story, Selma,' he said solemnly. Mitch looked anxious. "'Human people will find a way, won't they, Frank?' he asked. "'To win, to come to Mars and live. I mean, to change everything. Sure, some will be sympathetic, but... When there's practical pressure, needs, danger, economics. I don't know, Mitch, Nelson answered in the same tone as before. Your thickets do have a pretty good defense. But in his heart, he suspected that fierce human persistence couldn't be stopped, as long as there were humans left. Mitch and his star folk couldn't withdraw from the mainstream of competition, inheritant life, that was spreading again across the solar system. They could only stand their ground, take their fearful chances, be part of it. One last thing, Mitch said, was, Got any cigarettes, Frank? Selma likes one once in a while. Sure, three packs here inside my archer. Mighty small hospitality gift, Mitch. After the copter drifted away, it seemed that a curtain drew over Nelson's mind, blurring the whole memory. It was as though they had planned that, it was almost as though Mitch and Selma, as he had just seen them, were just another mind fantasy of the heebie-jeebie planet, created by its present masters. "'Should we believe it?' Nance whispered. "'My cigarettes are gone,' Frank told her. At the survey station they got weary looks from Ed Huth. "'I guess I picked the wrong man, Nelson,' he said. "'It looks as though you did, Ed,' Frank replied. "'I'm really sorry.' They got worse hell from a little doctor from Italy, whose name was Pacetti. 
They were asked a lot of questions. They fibbed some, but not entirely. We sort of blanked out, Doctor, Nance told him. I suppose we spent most of our time in the desert, living in our archers. There were the usual distorted hallucinations of Sirtis fever. A new strain, I suspect. Four months gone. Oh, no. She must have had a time evading his questions for the next month while she worked again in the lab. Maybe he did divine half of the truth at last. Maybe he even was sympathetic toward the thickets that he was trying to defeat. Nelson wasn't allowed to touch another helicopter. During that month, between brief but violent seizures of the fever, he was employed as a maintenance mechanic. Then the news came. There had been an emergency call from Palestine. Rescue units were to be organized and rocketed out in high-velocity UNSF and USSF bubs. There had been sabotage, violence. The town was three-quarters gone above the surface. Planned attack, or, almost worse, merely the senseless result of space-poisoned men kicking off the lid in a spree of hell-raising humor and fun. Nelson was bitter, but he also felt the primitive excitement almost in an eagerness that was the savage paradox in life. "'You still have the dregs of Sirtis fever,' a recruiting physician told him. "'But you know the belt. That makes a big difference. All right, you're going.' Nance Cottis didn't have the experience. Her lab background wasn't enough. So she was stuck on Mars. Nelson had been pestering her to marry him. Now, in a corner of the crowded lounge, she tried again. But she shook her head. You still have to leave me, Frank, she told him, because that's the way strong people have to be when there's trouble to be met. Let's wait. Let's know a little better where we're at, please, darling. I'll be all right. Contact me when you can. Her tone was low and tender and unsteady. He hugged her close. Soon he was aboard a G.O. rocket, shooting up to Phobos to join the assembling rescue team. He wondered if this was the beginning of the end. End of chapter 7, part 2